0: Good evening. Goodbye forever, my natural Rinpoche. Chapter 10, part one. Thank you, I grinned. I'm vicariously Vic something or other. Whatever something or other you are, Ron's got to hear this. And so he did. It seemed that I'd be playing harp with the savage cabbage blues band. Chapter 10, It's Like Being a Hermit, June 1968. I'd gained familiarity with the wrathful awareness beings and protectors of Vajrayana, and wouldn't have described my father as an ogre, even though Lindsay and her friend Sandra described him thus. The older I became, the more sadness I sensed behind his anger. He was not a bad man at all, simply a man who had made some unfortunate choices. He'd had unrealistic expectations of his promotion in the army and was too proud to accept his lot as a working class officer. The situation Was not fair, but neither are many other forms of elitism, chauvinism and racism. One can fight these things and it is good to fight them, but the consequences of fighting need to be accepted. It seems there was no one to tell him how to play the game. Maybe there were, Maybe he didn't listen. I would never know because it was not possible to have a conversation with him. I had to guess at the source of his bitterness from the clues he threw out from time to time. I tried to be as good a Buddhist as I could be in terms of how I thought of him. And I knew that trying to understand his background was the best way to go about it. It's not easy to understand a working class Tory who has occasional unexpected bouts of socialism. He exclaimed several times on the unfairness of a furrier's employee never being able to buy his wife a coat such as the ones he had made. There were many aspects of life that he could not reconcile with being a working-class Tory. There were many aspects of life that he could not fathom at all. I was one of them. Sandra lived up the road from where Alice used to live, the last house on the left before Wayflood Woods. Sandra's parents owned an MG MGB GT. It was a thing of wonder. It seemed marvellous that a car could be named after a series of initials like that. And being able to reel them off gave me some bizarre credit with the boys in my class. Lindsay had wanted to call on my father and give him a piece of her mind but Sandra thought that would be unwise. She thought it would get me into even more trouble. Lindsay and Sandra could only compare him with their own fathers, who were considerably younger. My father was bent out of shape by being an Edwardian, with a strong dose of Victorian morality in post-World War II England. He was born in 1902 and so he was probably more or less a fair man for the time and culture with which he was familiar. Genghis Khan was a fair man for his time too. He'd ride up to a city with his army and give the populace three choices. The first choice was that the populace could stay. And life would go on exactly as it did before. Only they'd become part of Genghis Khan's growing empire. The second choice was that they could all leave. And they'd not be hindered. They could take what they needed and hit the road. The third choice was that they could attempt to defend their city. But if they did that and lost, every last inhabitant would be put to the sword. They all went for the first choice and life simply continued but with the added safety of Genghis Khan's rule. Now if you look at Genghis Khan and judge him by modern criteria, he was an imperialist warlord bent on world dominion. Now, my father wasn't exactly Genghis Khan, but there were certain similarities. Things would have been better if I'd taken option one. My memories of early childhood are what they are. It's important to state that my father could often be generous. He built a climbing frame on which Graham and I enjoyed many hours of amusement. He was actually pleased with me when I learnt how to hang upside down on that thing. It was only sport I disliked, and it came as a relief to him whenever I did anything that made it look as if I was a normal boy. My father sometimes came home with special gastronomic treats, such as gammon. Then we'd have a feast with chips and fried eggs. It's hard to frame a realistic picture of Major Ernest Mathers simerson royal engineers, retired. His generosity tended to be eclipsed, in my young mind, by his rule of iron. He was an old-fashioned martinet. His anger was his own problem, and he suffered from it probably more than I ever did. He had a sense of moral order, which was at odds with society. The social order, as it was, enraged him on a daily basis. Edwardian England had vanished, and he seemed unprepared to accept the fact Britain had won the war and lost the peace in terms at least of the societal mores he valued. The end of the war was to have betokened the beginning of a life that he was to have enjoyed but as soon as the war was over the rules started changing. The social mores became increasingly mutable. People kissed on television and there was no public outrage. Brief glimpses of bosoms had appeared in films and no one was imprisoned for the offence. It lived in a time when Lady Chatterley's lover had been a scandal and when public outrage was roused at Rep. Butler telling Scarlett O'Hara Quite frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. He raged alone and unheard. My mother would agree with him to keep the peace, but I knew she had a far broader mind. If I'd understood his pain, I would have cried for him. But I had no concept as to why his jaw stiffened every time he heard the news. By 1968, he was 66 years old and had already begun a decline in which he incrementally mellowed. My father had always seemed old. He was 22 years older than my mother and sadly, he made her older rather than she making him younger. The year 1968 turned out to be the last year of my father's reign as monarch of 17 Woodsfield Lane, as far as my life went, because the times they were a changing. Shortly after my 16th birthday, my father threw down the gauntlet. The ultimatum was in respect of the length of my hair, I had to get a conventional haircut by which he meant a military short back and sides or leave home. I took Genghis Khan's option two. Option three, fighting, was a dishonourable option for me. It was his house and he was working to pay the mortgage, pay the bills, and put food on the table. All right, dad, I'll leave, I sighed. I understand your position and I bear you no ill will. I extended my arm to shake hands as if I was a character from Jeeves and Worcester. He took my hand with a look of eerie bafflement on his face. We shook hands. I went off to pack, thinking these would be the last words I would ever exchange with my father. I'd wanted the words that I used to be good words, rather than words I'd regret. Strangely, I felt no anger and no resentment toward my father. I simply felt like an independent adult. It was somehow nobler to be polite. It would have been ignoble and actually childish, from my point of view, to have had some sort of altercation. This came as a complete surprise to my father. My wishing to shake his hand on being cast from the parental home had clearly thrown him. It must have seemed the most unlikely response. What I failed to cognise was that when I'd extended my hand I'd given him no choice but to accept it. He was an Edwardian major after all. The last thing he could have imagined was that I'd willingly head off into nowhere with the possibility of no roof over my head and nowhere to sleep other than some hostel for the destitute or an obliging tree. I'd have chosen any field or hedgerow rather than an institution, but I had no idea where I'd go. My mother was horrified and entirely at a loss for how to handle the situation. Her husband was obdurate, but so was her son neither would listen to reason well that's not entirely true i did listen to reason i would never have refused to listen to my mother i just failed to agree with the nature of her reasoning it suggested compromise but the time for compromise was over it had been over since the beatles revolver album in 66 I'd had one haircut too many. I presented my mother with my reasoning. I'm sorry, mom, but I'm 16. No one owns my body but me. I own my hair. No one else owns any part of me. No one has the right to alter any part of my body without my agreement. I imagine I may have been the person invented the broken record technique in terms of that argument. Whatever was said it came back to the fact that I had to have the final choice of anything that concerned my body. No one owned me. I was not breaking any law. I was just demanding the right to sole control of my appearance. My father had to accept that as far as my body was concerned, I was beyond his command. I would not exactly become rebellious. Far from it. I just insisted on governing my own appearance. I was quite willing to acquiesce in all other areas, such as the volume I played music and the tidiness of my room. This was no problem for me because I was never a headbanger in terms of volume. I was also naturally, or perhaps unnaturally, tidy. The strangest event then transpired. My father conceded. He told me I was free to look as I chose, but warned me that my choice would damage my chances of any decent livelihood. I told him I understood, but I was willing to take that risk. That was then the end of the matter. It was never discussed again. After the brief but intense hair debacle, my father and I entered a new phase of relationship in which I became the good son. The son who never argued or took issue with his political views. My father was a staunch conservative, which was difficult for me because I found myself with decidedly Marxist-Anarchist leanings. It was my father Graham who suddenly rose up to champion the cause of youth rebelliousness in the house and challenged my father whenever he said anything too absurdly right wing Steve had been there every step of the way on my road to freedom because I'd given him a running commentary on the state of play with my father. Steve never came round to my house because he found my father too unlike his own to connect in any way. My father was like something out of Charles Dickens as far as Steve was concerned. He could talk with his own father and mother Almost adult to adult. But my father would not allow any such relationship. I could understand Steve's reaction entirely. How do you stand it? Steve asked. I mean, you're Lieutenant Looney. How can you not go crazy? It must be like being a hermit. Well, I may be filled Marshal Mayhem, General Disorder. Brigadier Bizarre, Major Debacle, Captain Chaos, Warrant Officer Weird, Sergeant Surreal or even Private Parts, I added, interrupting Steve's flow. But I am also some kind of hermit. A Buddhist is always some kind of hermit. Very funny, but seriously, how can you have any kind of conversation with him? I can't. But does that, isn't that like, like being a hermit, I interjected, finishing Steve's sentence for him. Yes, it's like being a hermit.